Recovery Reform is a podcast that provides educational content while addressing the stigma against drugs and the people who use them. Expertise meets lived experience as the hosts and their respective guests unpack the multifaceted cause that is recovery reform. Welcome back to the Recovery Reform podcast. My name is Macaulay Sexton. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Taylor Nichols. I'm going to jump right into it. Often, trauma doesn't just stop if someone gets into recovery when it comes to your loved ones that you know may have a passive substance use disorder and that are now in recovery. Often, it can continue or depending on like underlying mental health things, could potentially get worse, you know, depending on what resources that person has and, you know, their way of thinking. And even that individual now potentially stigmatizing you, you know, maybe even if you don't have an alcohol use disorder, maybe if you have a single drink, maybe if you, you know, for some people, maybe if if they consume cannabis and their their parent in recovery will judge that. So yeah, I just, I love everything that you said, because it all, it brings it back to the stigma and how, you know, and I'm just going to be honest, I think that the number one kind of perpetuator and perpetrator is the recovery space. And it, that's that's the thing is that we, you know, those of us in long term recovery are just that have maintained, you know, consecutive months, years, whatever, end up again, getting in positions of power. And then we are the ones that people go to, to really reference when it comes to lived experience but then also we get to kind of uh impose our 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 experiences and what worked for us onto other people and it's actually encouraged you know what i mean and so it's so tricky because i think that the responsibility ultimately falls on the individuals that are really inhabiting that community more than anywhere and and again i'm not trying to say oh you know medical professionals don't have to work on this like obviously this is a very nuanced thing where it's like multifaceted but i do believe that if it's coming from inside the house and we're not addressing that first i don't know where like how we're going to go about it because then there's also people have issues with authority so we can have all the doctors or even addiction medicine professionals in the world you know being very informed and advocating and and teaching people about person first language and addressing stigma we can have you know the government come out and say you know release statements like like i was mentioning earlier with something that i think was related to biden where it was like this whole statement on being mindful when it comes to language and that's not going to matter to a completely biased community of people who have been told that their whole just identity is based on their lived experience and what worked for them. So, and I'm not trying to be overly critical, but it's just like, I have to, I just have to mention that because I, I do think that when it comes to imparting change, I don't know any other way of doing that other than taking personal responsibility first and 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 bringing about that change but of course there's catalysts for that there's different people again who have come before you and and have come before me that can aid in that but but yeah i just yeah i wanted to you know just affirm the fact that you're able to take that and use it as a pillar of empathy because that's what's lacking when it comes to the kind of people insisting that they have to call people addicts or they have to frame it the certain way. And yeah. like kind of you alluded to earlier, it's punitive. It's all, this is all punitive. It's punishment because people feel hurt. It's like, I'm hurt by this person, you know, or just people even 
just perceiving people with substance use disorders as inherently hurtful and manipulative and conniving, you know? So, you know, I'll, I'll end the rant there, but I, I really, if you're cool with it, of course, like any, any thoughts you have on what I just kind of rambled on about, I'm interested to hear that. But I also just kind of want to go into briefly, um, unless you want to go longer, I'm cool with that. Um, just addiction medicine in general, as yeah. far as like implementation of medication and uh, like, I want to hear your thoughts on specifically, if you're cool with it. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on methadone. Um, and yeah. I'd like to hear your thoughts on Suboxone as well. And maybe yeah. Sublicade as opposed yeah. to, uh, you know, Vivitrol um, and, sure. and other options like that, which I'm generally not as, as much of a fan of, of those options. I'm not against them. But but yeah, if you're cool with that, I'd love to kind of segue into that after so, kind of I think going off. One- what you said is critically important. And I think it comes down to just needing to get out of this idea that there's a one size fits all approach to uh, obtaining sobriety or, or um, abstinence and maintaining that if that's your goal. Yeah. And I think we also have to understand that that isn't always the goal and that that's okay too. Um, And I think, there's this really negative thought process of like, oh, well, the real ones, you know, got sober or the re- you know, like, <laughs> I think the idea of saying, I mean, even ironically, like the term recovery, um, people like weaponize that. And so I, 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 I am cautious with the way that I use the term recovery. And when Same. I describe people who are in, um, you know, who are maintaining their abstinence. I just say that their substance use disorders in remission yeah. um, because we think it like, that's how we talk about medical conditions in medicine. Like it's either yeah. they're in, in, in relapse um, in this case, like returning to use or they're in remission. Those are sort yeah. of the, that's like the dichotomy that exists in medicine. And we don't talk about other things as like, like, Oh, well um, they're in recovery. I mean, you don't say that like somebody from, uh, is in recovery from MS or like multiple sclerosis when they yeah. actively have MS, you say they're in remission um, yeah. until it comes back. Right. And then it's active again. And in this case, it would be actively using or they're actively having a flare uh, of their multiple sclerosis. So yeah. I, I, um, I think recovery is a great term because it encapsulates all of the factors that go along with being in remission because you can recover other facets of your life. But that, like, we can, we can weaponize that term as well. And so I, I do oh. emphasize that, I, like, I want, I'm careful about the way I, that I use that because of exactly what you're talking about, that some people will say that there's only one way to do something and they'll put it in a box and they'll say it's a one-size-fits-all approach. And we need to do away with this thinking about that. And, and the, what you alluded to in terms of that one-size-fits-all approach is that for some people, they want to quit cold turkey or whatever. Um, and some people do better maintained on a treatment. And for differing amounts of time, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to the amount of time that people are on medications, right? So yeah. that's the other thing. Um, and they're so stigmatized that people will often initially want to be like, oh, I would just want to use it to detox, which like that's also a term that NIDA says to, to no longer use that I have all, long thought didn't make sense because it's not 
like detoxing isn't a thing. You're not like eliminating toxins. You are going through withdrawal and we are managing withdrawal. So yeah. instead of detox, we like to use the term withdrawal management. Yeah, that's so a really... in the withdrawal management stage or phase um, because you're in withdrawal. It's not because there's toxins in your body that you like need to leach out. It's just because you have developed a de tolerance and a dependence and, and you, you're going through withdrawal because that substance is no longer in your system. Yeah, um, that's that's such a good point. I'm sorry, I don't, don't want to cut you off really quick. No, no, no. Detox implies uh, it's implied abstinence. Basically, it's right. like you're you're detoxing, and now you're going to be again the yeah. more problematic term, clean and sober. And I just really quickly because it's a really good thing, and I, I'll just go really briefly into it. You know, personally, I don't identify as being in recovery, and I know I've talked to you about this, and I've mentioned it to you, yeah. and I don't identify as as being in remission either. I know that right. medically. Uh, objectively, there's there's things that are are true when it comes to that. Um, but I, I do want to just say, like, for anyone out there, and I know that we're on the same page with this, is that you can, you know, identify however you'd like, and that's totally fine. It's like whatever works for 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 not only your your process but your mental health. And so, you know, I am of the school of thought that is kind of less agreed upon when it comes to that to where I do believe that you can completely heal yourself from a substance use disorder, but then it's a uh, continual work on the underlying mental health challenges. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, I do think that you can rid yourself of a compulsion and not have that and potentially revisit substance use without going into problematic use. But often for a lot of people after a period of, you know, abstinence, they if you do certain things, you find yourself really content um, without changing the way that you feel. And I think that that ends up being a motivator more so than the kind of like the the remission um, kind of perpetual recovery narrative. I think for many people is embodied as a, a fear based way of thinking, a fear of relapse. Um, but again, I'm not really trying to say that it's not accurate medically you know what i mean to where it's yeah. like yeah i i just i agree with you and also just wanted to add that i'm not in the in the school of thought of like you know people who say like oh you're cured or whatever because i think the underlying mental health is a progressive thing like you need to continually or I need to continually work on that. Um, and a lot of things are often revealed that are maybe kind of being, uh, you know, pushed down or even numbed. You know what I mean? But I appreciate you saying everything that you said, because it's really important for people to understand that when we're talking about this, we're talking about something with legitimate medical implications, and it does not need to be talked about in a sensationalized, superstitious way. And so when we, when we refine it to, to, you know, talking about it as, as a disorder, which it is, and mentioning the fact that it is, you know, really just objectively seen and observed as a, you know, remitting and relapsing disorder, I can, yeah, it's, it's a weird mixture, bro, to where I like see that and I acknowledge that, but I'm also super weird and esoteric to where I'm like, I am not going to say that I'm in remission or in recovery, um, just personally. And then this is the last thing I'll say, that I think is really important. And I, I know you've probably seen this too. Recovery is describing gaining things or recovering things that you've lost. Yes. Yes. The majority of the things in my life were never, ever established. <laughs> so 
I wasn't recovering shit except for some relationships. Really, it was like relationship with my mom, relationship with my partner. Everything else I was establishing for the first time. And there are some people who are younger who maybe have never had sustainable relationships, who have never established emotional regulation, who have never established the things that it takes to live like a more sustainable life. And so we need to acknowledge that those people, it's a totally different process for them. And to lump everyone in and put them in the same room and give them the same approach in the same meeting does not make sense when we need to consider there are people who manifest on the extreme end of the spectrum and ones that manifest on the less extreme end of the spectrum. And the ones on the extreme end of the spectrum who have never established certain things are going to have a, a, a kind of harder time because you do not get to go back to the job that was being held for you. You do not get to go back to the relationship that you know may be holding on by a thread, but that's still there as a pillar of support. And so, um, yeah, I just, I love that you brought that up because even re just recovery in general, like I touched on, is implying a perpetual, what I call life sentence of recovery, which for someone who felt trapped in substance use disorder, I cannot live my life feeling like I am in this restrictive space of, you know, do A, B, C, D, go to meetings every day, you know, call your sponsor, all that. And nothing against those things. It's just for someone, you know, we get to authentically embody what's right for us and everyone deserves that autonomy. And that's, again, part of why, like, when I saw you, I was like, Oh my God. It was like, I was, I was, <laughs> it's like I was dehydrated and I'm seeing this, you know, mirage of water. And I'm like, that sounds like sexualized, but <laughs> I'm like, look at this dude, the chiseled jaw. And, no, but I'm like, Oh my God, dude, like this, this exists. And I've talked to other cool providers, but like, dude, you've just, you've done the work on understanding understanding this and understanding stigma and i just want to give you that affirmation again dude because it's just you. it makes me feel so hopeful yeah. and, and 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 also Ooh. fuck hope because you're taking action so we don't have to hope uh, i'll stop now but uh i'm sorry i just totally hijacked oh, it but you, I, you 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 bring up two really good points um in that in that rant and i always can can like pick something out of your uh your like Rants, rapid fire <laughs> uh your rapid fire that are so good um but but you keyed in on one thing that i think is important and that is a one-size-fits-all approach is always from an equity lens is always going to be harmful to the people with the least resources Thanks. right yeah. because you that that one-size-fits-all approach is is never designed for them specifically right and so what you're talking about is because it's designed by the people who had the resources to do that thing first, right? <laughs> like the, it's never designed by people, unfortunately, right? Right? Like this is why we should, the people who, who are granted the least power should have some access to the levers of control to find the balance where we can find a, a reasonable approach and it doesn't have to be one size fits all, but some things can't be on a spectrum, right? But when we're talking yeah. about recovering, like you said, some people, what are they recovering? You can't recover something you never had. Yeah. And so 
So again, this speaks to like why I am cautious with the way that I use the term recovery. But from an equity standpoint, we have to be able to approach substance use disorders beyond on a spectrum with compassion and with empathy beyond a one size fits all approach. Um, Because otherwise we're causing harm. And in this case, causing harm to the people with the least resources. And we, we know that that's often the case. And we should be mindful of that when we're thinking about the structures that we're building and developing to enable an improvement in those things, in those structures, in society. So if we're trying to improve the way recovery spaces work, then we have to be mindful of the fact that that cannot exist on a, on, in a one-size-fits-all container because then we're causing harm. So that, that is like point one that I wanted to make that, that you like actually articulated very well right there. And the other is the importance of autonomy. So the, the reason that I talk about the healthcare system being one of those three pillars that we have to address is that autonomy is one of four um, pillars of uh, healthcare or medical ethics that we talk about. So it's um, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. And autonomy is the first one because that is always critically important. That's where the ideas of like informed consent came from. The idea that patients should have autonomy over their own selves. And we yet somehow we have forgotten that in this context, right? In terms of a healthcare space and a lot of recovery spaces are healthcare spaces. And so we should be applying that autonomy lens that is one of the four pillars that you learn on day one of med school. We should be applying that in this case. And autonomy means that people should be able to make up their minds about how they recover or what their recovery looks like. Um, and so I think that's, those are two really important points that we, that um, need to be applied to the context of recovery, not being a one size fits all thing and being cautious about the language that we use, including the term recovery. Um, the other thing that you asked was about medications for addiction treatment. Yeah. So what I didn't get into earlier when you asked was, um, so I did four years of of re- residency in emergency medicine, and then there are now so addiction medicine as its own board certified specialty is pretty new. Is like one of the babyest subspecialties that exists. Um, the first board certification exams, which are conducted by the American Board of Preventative Medicine. I think the first ones were in 2015, maybe 2016. Um, That was for, that was like if you did fellowship training, which is usually just a year and you do an extra year after residency to do a subspecialty. And what's interesting about addiction medicine is that um, it can exist with it. It incorporates multiple specialties. And so There are some places, UC Davis has an addiction medicine fellowship that is housed in the Department of Emergency Medicine. Um, There are other places that have it housed in the Department of Internal Medicine, other places in the Department of Psychiatry. And so um, you can approach addiction medicine from multiple uh, initial specialties. Um, But so you go, you 
become board certified or finish residency in a field. And then you do, go do a year of training in just addiction medicine. Um, I happened to do a fellowship in health policy and advocacy before the addiction medicine fellowship existed at UC Davis. So I did, did a fellowship at UC Davis. And then the year I graduated, they started the addiction medicine fellowship. But fortunately for me, the American Board of Preventative Medicine basically granted a time period of, um, in which people could do enough clinical hours or created a clinical pathway where um, you didn't have to do a fellowship necessarily, but if you did enough hours in addiction medicine, um, and uh, some of those could be some of your hours from your like general medical field, which in my case, it was emergency medicine. Okay. Um, and then I worked in an addiction medicine clinic to be apply to the American Board of Preventative Medicine to become board eligible. And so that pathway is open through 2025. Um, so I became board eligible by doing enough hours. And then I took my addiction medicine board certification exam um, and passed that. So I'm now board certified in addiction medicine and emergency medicine. Um, and so I didn't do a separate fellowship, but for now that pathway exists. Soon that's going to okay. close. And then people will have to do a year of fellowship training to become uh, board certified in addiction medicine. Now, so that's to give a bit of background about yeah. how you become like an addiction medicine physician. Um, there's also people who do toxicology training. There's a lot of overlap, obviously, understandably with addiction medicine, and they do yeah. two years of training in toxicology. And so they can also take the um, board certification exam for addiction medicine. Okay. Um, okay. So there are toxicologists who are also addiction medicine. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot. Um, yeah, and they one. because there's so much overlap there. Um, but so, as an addiction medicine physician, we are prescribing medications for people who have substance use disorders and for different substance use disorders. And there's a whole spectrum. Um, and the American Society of Addiction Medicine puts out has put out guidelines um, for different things, sort of a review of the available research on different medications for different substances. For example, they recently put out guidelines for tr the treatment of stimulant use disorders, including cocaine, methamphetamine, et cetera. Um, and there are different treatments that have been studied for different stimulants. Um, and we have the data on all of those. So we know that we can use certain medications that they have some level of efficacy for craving management uh, and withdrawal management for different substance use disorders. Some of them we have less information about. And then because of that, we have less studies done on those things. Yeah. Um, so there are some areas where we definitely have gaps and we're still improving and expanding and exploring more options. Um, wanna... for, for opioids specifically, the options are full opioid agonist therapy, which is methadone, long-acting full agonist. And agonist just means that it binds to a receptor and activates it fully, so to 100% of its activity. So methadone is a full agonist or a full opioid, um, yeah. activates the opioid receptors 100%. Uh, buprenorphine is the other one, and that is, it activates the receptors, say, 50%. It's a partial agonist. Um, so also an opioid, 
less act- opioid activation. And then naltrexone, which is an opioid antagonist, which means it blocks the receptor completely. Um, so it doesn't activate it at all. Um, and it doesn't give any opioid activity or any sense of um, the, the euphoria, analgesia, all the other things that opioids do, um, which is decreased in both buprenorphine and methadone because they are so long acting. So if you think about like short acting opioids versus long acting opioids, the entirety of the effect of that like euphoria or the, the beneficial effects, the analgesia, the euphoria, all of those things are consolidated under what their like time course yeah, and onset like. too, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you look at fentanyl, it's like a rapid spike and a rapid fall. Um, really potent, really high spike, really um, short period of time. So all of that euphoria, analgesia, all of that is really consolidated into a short period of time. Methadone, the half-life is up to 60 hours. So you're taking the same amount of euphoria, analgesia, all of that, and you're stretching it out. And so you're never going to get the same level of activation um, as you would with fentanyl, for example. Um, Buprenorphine, even less so, because it only activates it up to 50%. Um, So we know that both methadone and buprenorphine are highly effective for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Naltrexone, which in the injectable form is called Vivitrol, can be used for the treatment of uh, opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder. Um, It is blocking the opioid receptors, so you can't continue to use, you don't get any of the activation. Now, the data, when we initially look at the data, it looks like they're fairly equivalent. The problem is, and this has been only sort of uncovered more recently, is that if you actually examine the data, it's because more people have fallen out of the naltrexone groups than the other opioid groups, for example. Uh, and they're, right, it, yeah. they have an overdose problem is really what it comes down to. Is like people who are in those naltrexone groups end up using and dying, and that's a problem. Um, because it doesn't satisfy the cravings the same way that, say, methadone and buprenorphine do. I want to ask you your opinion on this. Do you, do you feel that it's implemented in a punitive way? Because uh, that's my judgment of it. Um, th- also, things like, like ant abuse. I'm not sure what, what like, specific yeah. pharmaceutical that is. Um, but I, just, I know that often what ends up happening is that a lot of younger people um, or a lot of people um, based on their family's influence are encouraged and treatment, you know, treatment centers are influencing, you know, the use of, yeah. of Vivitrol um, a lot more um, because of this abstinence-based, you know, rhetoric and way of thinking. But do you, do you believe that's true? Do you think I'm just kind of like, you no, know? I don't, I don't think you're, I don't think you're wrong. So, so it's different for alcohol use disorder. Um, now, disulfiram, which is ant abuse, causes you to have um, a negative reaction, causes you to get sick if you yeah. drink alcohol. And also in response to other things that are like alcohol-containing products. Um, so um, it, you kind of have to avoid like a large spectrum of things. I, I think I've prescribed that once ever, and it was by request 
of a patient okay. who was yeah. like, this is how I got sober yeah. 20 years ago. And this is how I want to do it again. And I was like, I, you know, I talked to him about all the other options. He's like, this is what works for me. I'm like, okay, um, that's fine. But like, I, I will mention it if people are curious, but like I generally avoid using disulfiram at all. And, and even not just for the punitive aspect, which I think is, is harmful. Um, I think that like all of the other things that they would have to avoid is also harmful. Well, like, like orange think, juice like, or what? <laughs> no, it's like, like vanilla extract, like has, has like some component. It's like an alcohol yeah. containing product. Right. So like you have to avoid that. Otherwise you can get sick. Would it be um, things even like kombucha or juices though? Cause I know that there's, you know, a yeah, trace yeah. amounts if in it, there. If too. it has trace really? amounts of alcohol in it, then you will get sick with, wow. with I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that, so the, so like, even if I thought that was somehow like, okay, it it would be, it, it seems overly harmful to me, even if you were okay with harming someone because they were drinking, which I also see as problematic. But even if you were okay with that, like harming somebody because they drink kombucha is like not the goal. So, so that would, like, that would be self-defeating. Right. Um, so, so, so there's that Vivitrol in the context of alcohol use disorder, because it's blocking opioid receptors, opioid receptors, right? We have them in our body because we produce them. We only have receptors in our body that are things that we produce naturally within ourselves. So we, ha- we call them endogenous. So we have endogenous opioid production. We produce our own op- opioids to give us a sense of euphoria, to help with analgesia, like to, to, decrease pain like if something bad if you have some traumatic injury you're going to release a bunch of opioids to try and blunt that pain response and that is how that works for like using them for pain right but also the sense of euphoria now if you're drinking or using other substances in fact we've seen this to be true including with stimulant use disorders you have some level of endogenous opioid release or releasing opioids within your body as part of your euphoria pathway and the reward pathway, which is what we talk about in addiction medicine is like, there is a neurobiological basis for addiction or substance use disorders. And it's the part of it is this disordered reward pathway. Um, And if you block your sense of euphoria for using substances, including alcohol, including stimulants, then you are breaking that cycle of like, oh, I use this, I, you know, I get a, a, I get a rush, I get a euphoria. Um, stimulants, right? What they're doing is they're activating a lot of stimulating neurochemicals and building up in your brain, norepinephrine, dopamine, that sort of thing, and you're releasing a bunch of it. You're not. It's not binding to opioid receptors, but you are releasing opioids as a response to create the sense of euphoria because you enjoy that thing, right? Um, so the reason it's effective for those other things isn't because of it's blocking you from overdosing on your drug of choice. It's because it's breaking this euphoria cycle um, and the reward pathways that you've generated. And so in that sense, it can be useful. And so I, I will use naltrexone for... Um, alcohol use disorder or stimulant use disorders. Um, But I generally don't use it for opioid use disorder because we know that the data is better for if using opioids for opioid use disorder. Um, And so 
you know, to, to, to go to that, I mean, the data is frankly the best for methadone. Um, the problem about the way we use methadone uh, in this country in particular is that you have to go to an open and a methadone, you know, treatment program. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to ask for, you about for your for your daily dosing, unless they get you take homes, and then that is a whole nother like spectrum of like when you're allowed to get take homes and how many you're allowed to give and all of this stuff. But you're not allowed to prescribe like you cannot legally prescribe a person with opioid use disorder their methadone to be picked up at the pharmacy. So, what is the implementation of those methadone tablets? They they use it. They for, chronic use it for, pain. for chronic pain primarily because I, I that's the first time i ever took methadone was a a, a, tablet, a tablet you know that that mm -hmm. was from a prescription mm -hmm. and so yeah i wanted to, to go into that and just like you know ask you your opinion on that and obviously you made, you made it very clear because I, I mean i agree I, i'm someone who went to a methadone clinic um for, mm -hmm. for a year and uh you know for me it was there was a lot of barriers when it came to that totally. and then again it's a, a very punitive space when depending on what state you're in if you you know have have a positive result um in your drug screening for for cannabis for instance yep. uh, you can get kicked out um you know what i mean and so it really depends on on the place i was lucky even here in texas they would kind of turn a blind eye to that which is great honestly but mm -hmm. but yeah it's uh I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the data is pretty, you know, clear when it comes to, I'm sorry, but just like comparing a full agonist to a partial agonist, it kind of makes sense, you know? Um, so what are your, like when, if you could, you know, implement it sort of like Suboxone, do you think that would be your personal choice would be to go in, in that direction? Like is a lot of the um, reasoning behind, you know, obviously what you can do in like the, the room you have to even operate is going to steer you in the direction of, you know, basically being a, a suboxone yeah. provider. Right. Yeah. So you, so if you want to be able to prescribe from clinic right now, the only thing you can be prescribing to patients with opioid use disorder is um, buprenorphine or suboxone. Yeah. Um, suboxone is buprenorphine, naloxone. It's like a combination medication and um, I mentioned earlier that is like pharmacologically doesn't make sense because the the binding affinity, which is the strength to which uh, a a substance, in this case buprenorphine, binds to its receptor. So buprenorphine as a semi-synthetic opioid binds to opioid receptors. It has a very high binding affinity, which means it binds more strongly than other substances, including naloxone it binds more strongly than fentanyl the great thing about buprenorphine is that it binds so strongly to those receptors and it will kick other things off that don't bind as strong so that high binding affinity that's higher than naloxone if you were to inject it the thing that would cause the precipitated withdrawal is the buprenorphine because that has a higher binding affinity than the naloxone the naloxone doesn't actually make any sense other than to block other available opioid receptors right it won't bind to the ones that the buprenorphine is binding to because it doesn't bind as strongly if there are other available receptors it will bind to those so it's like a slightly higher amount there's a reason that they did it in a four to one ratio um it, which is what they sort of came up with that's why it's like eight milligrams and two milligrams yeah. in a in a suboxone tablet or strip um because they they didn't want sort of the competing 
of like a of a blocker versus the you know an agonist and an antagonist. Now, um, that is to say that like the buprenorphine is the thing that binds the most strongly in that context. So you can use plain buprenorphine all the same as buprenorphine naloxone. And if you ask anybody who's tried to overuse or inject either one, they've, they, they will tell you that like they are effectively the same because the thing that's doing the binding is the buprenorphine. That's the, the opioid. There's, so, there's a ceiling effect too, correct? Where yeah. it's just, you can't, so, but so do you have freedom to, to pres prescribe Subutex? Yeah. So I, I'm in clinic. I almost exclusively prescribe Subutex. Um, which is the the generic name of buprenorphine only, or plain plain buprenorphine tablets with no naloxone in it. Um, different states have different regulations around that, yeah. and I have so many thoughts on that, and I don't like to be conspiratorial, but <laughs> the reason it exists, like the purely the reason it exists, is because it was able to be pitched as this abuse deterrent. And so because it was able to, to latch on to this idea of this punitive nature of approaching people with, who use drugs, that they were able to sort of regulatory capture some, um, some of the regulations on a state level to say that like, oh, you can only prescribe unless you have a valid reason to not prescribe the the buprenorphine uh, naloxone, then that has to be the thing that you prescribe to a person with opioid use disorder. Now this goes back and I could, I mean, we've gone on for a while, but like I could talk about this for a long time, but like this history in this country is wild. And I wasn't until I started doing addiction medicine, I started exploring how harmful it has been, but it is literally, it is because it has been illegal to prescribe a person with a substance use disorder to treat them with that substance. We have an exemption for methadone. We have an exemption for buprenorphine. Um, and so we can do that because we literally pass laws to, to make an exception for them to be able to be used for that. Um, to think about like how dark this gets, right? So methadone was the first. Buprenorphine was created as a semi-synthetic, meaning like a pharmaceutical company synthesize this in part it's like a, taken in part from the the plant derived um op opioid opium uh and then and then semi-synthetic because then there's that is added on to and that was created even 1966 um by pharmaceutical companies who were there was a lot of exploration then into creating you know analgesics um and so buprenorphine was long used in the hospital for treating acute and chronic pain um, in, in, in clinics. Um, so if you ask any, you know, if you ask a nurse who's worked in the hospital since, say, the, like, 90s, even early 2000s, they used Buprenex, IV Buprenex. It was before, you know, the fentanyl. Um, it was basically morphine, Demerol, or Buprenex, right? And so... If you ask people like old school, what I've tried to tell people like, no, 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 this has existed for a long time. It was, we used it for a long time for the treatment of pain. And then you ask a nurse, they'll, the, if they've been around long enough, they'll be like, oh yeah, we used to use Buprenex all the time. Um, so 
it's existed. And we knew because of its long acting nature that it could be effective like methadone, which we had already seen used um, with its long half-life. But now we're like, oh, this is a partial agonist with a long half-life that could be even better and it could be even safer. And we knew it could be used in the treatment of opioid use disorder and people had used it for that. Um, and it wasn't until the Drug Abuse Treatment Act of 2000 or data 2000 legislation was passed that we created that exception to allow buprenorphine to be used to treat opioid use disorder. What we did then was we created the X waiver. So people who wanted to use buprenorphine to treat, because we made, you know, exceptions for like methadone, you had to work in a methadone treatment program. So what we did for buprenorphine was we put the, we created this eight additional hours of training for physicians and 24 hours for nurse practitioners and physician assistants to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. So by putting this barrier, and it's not a huge barrier, but it's still a barrier. And it also made people intimidated by it. Like, oh, you have to do this training. It must be so hard to use, which it's not. But um, we created this barrier that existed until January of 2023 when, you know, um, there had been a, a legislation in Congress for two years called the MAT Act, which is the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act. Um, and that was to essentially eliminate the X waiver barrier. They kept the eight hours of training and they shifted it to any new, anybody who's acquiring, newly acquiring a DEA license or if you hadn't already done the eight hours of training for the X waiver. Um, that you had to go back and do that. And that was to be around all, all controlled substances, right? Not just buprenorphine anymore. This is like, if you're going to be prescribing opioids or stimulants, like you should, or benzodiazepines, like you should probably know how to use them. I get that. It's not just sort of labeling one certain medication. We created by the data 2000 legislation, the great thing about it was that it allowed us to use buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. The problem was that it created this barrier to its use. And not only did we create the X waiver that created the barrier, if you got an X waiver, you could only treat 30 patients with buprenorphine at a time. So if you're like a primary care doctor and you have a panel of, you know, multiple thousands of patients, only 30 of them could be on buprenorphine. And then if you applied to the DEA, you could get it expanded up to 100. And if you did that, safely for a year or whatever, you could apply to get it expanded to 275. So that was eliminated when the language from the MAT Act was incorporated into the Appropriations Act that was passed in January 2023. So as of January 2023, the X waiver doesn't exist. There are no limits on the number of patients to whom you can prescribe buprenorphine. Um, and the if you newly acquire a DEA license, then you have to do eight hours of training to be able to prescribe controlled substances, which is okay. Um, but the fact that we got rid of that was huge. Um, and that was something I had advocated for for those two years that the MAD Act existed. Now, because of the limitations we talked about with methadone, you can't prescribe it to a person with opioid use disorder, but you can prescribe it to a person with chronic pain. Um, there is an act that is sitting in Congress right now. It's called the MODA Act, um, which would liberalize the ability to prescribe methadone to 
only your your the the barrier in this case to prescribing methadone only board certified addiction medicine physicians can prescribe methadone to patients um that's what the act says and that's i mean i'm now a board certified addiction medicine physician so i get that um and like that's more okay now that i have like passed my exam but i i still think that's a fairly reasonable barrier the problem is there are only less than 5,000 addiction medicine physicians in this country who are board certified. There are over a million physicians in the United States. That is like less than 0.05%, which explains a lot. I mean, we're a brand new specialty, so I get that. It's going to take time. Um, but if you want to change medicine uh, in terms of decreasing stigma, understanding you know, substance use disorders and, and the treatment of substance use disorders, then you need more people who understand it and specialize in it. And so I'm hoping more people will join those ranks um, and that we can continue to do that work, um, including in the advocacy space. So like with the MODA Act, so far, it hasn't progressed um, to the point where it's, would, it, it's made it out of committee but it hasn't made it out of either house. So I'm hoping that we will see that move forward and we can liberalize the prescribing of methadone. And, and to give some context, because I'm sure people will be skeptical, like, oh, you want to prescribe methadone? That seems dangerous. It's a full agonist opioid. I completely understand that. And I, um, you know, I, I have uh, someone who was close to me who died of a methadone overdose. So I don't take this lightly um, to say that. But we saw we, COVID provided a natural experiment for us. At the beginning of COVID with lockdowns, you had to, sh the, these methadone treatment programs had to shut down. You couldn't have a bunch of people indoors in the same space, right? So they had to give take-homes to all of their patients. Um, and we had sort of a, a, a natural time frame where we had to see like, okay, is this going to be harmful or not? Um, and if we look at that data, we know, and, and we've studied it in terms of both buprenorphine and methadone, associated overdose deaths. And while they did go up, all like in the context of all overdoses, overdoses skyrocketed during that time. And so, as a percentage of overdose deaths, it was actually less. Um, fewer deaths associated with methadone, like where people had methadone in their system, yeah. potentially along with other things, right? few methadone-associated overdose deaths during that period than before. So we saw, and the same was true with buprenorphine, and so we saw by like a natural experiment that it didn't lead to this sudden spike in people dying from overdosing on methadone, um, which is what obviously people would fear the most. And I don't know that this legislation would be before Congress and that we would have the data to truly support it 
had that not happened, not that that was necessarily a good thing, but it provided us the example to, to, to then advocate with for that change. So I'm hoping to see that make some progress. Um, I know that the American Society of Addiction Medicine is very much behind it. Um, and in their advocacy committees working hard on, on trying to get that push forward. Um, but I do think there's a future where we can prescribe methadone from clinic and that that would be part of my armamentarium that I would use. Um, because frankly, what we are seeing now is the, the tip of the iceberg. When people talk about the fentanyl epidemic, they're too late. We're seeing nidazines, which are vastly more potent. Yep. Um, so there are two predominant nidazines that are already in the drug supply. You know, people were worried about xylazine, and, and we like completely missed the boat on on nidazines coming in. And so nidazines are aren't they're not even like they're not people will call them fentanyl analogs, but they're not even derivatives of fentanyl. They're wholly different structures. Um, and they were created by pharmaceutical companies back in like the 60s and 70s, I want to say, um, when they this same investigating searching for other um, analgesics, opioid treatment um, was ongoing. And they never made it to market because their early data showed that they were just too potent and there was too much potential harm. So they, ne like, they never progressed anywhere with that. Um, but that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, people who are illicitly making uh, substances um, to infiltrate the drug supply aren't going to then find that, find out how to create them, and distribute them, which is what's happening. So the two main um, nitazines that we're seeing in the drug supply right now are called isodonitazine and etonitazine. And isodonitazine, so if fentanyl is 50 times more potent than morphine, then isodonitazine is 250 times more potent than morphine, and etonitazine is 500 times more potent than morphine. So what we're seeing just with fentanyl right now is that, like you described, the ceiling effect. The ceiling, the ceiling effect of buprenorphine is because of that partial agonism. So it only reaches about 50% activity. So if you occupied 100% of all your receptors, you're still only going to get 50% activity. And what that does is that gives some safety. Because of that ceiling effect, you really, like if you're an opioid tolerant person, you can't really like, I mean, it would be very difficult to then get high and you can't really overdose on that alone. So um, that creates a certain amount of safety. The problem is with these highly potent drugs, um, like highly potent substances in the, in the supply, that the max dose of what we see, and it falls in the range of 30 to 40 milligrams of buprenorphine. Um, it differs depending on the person and their size and, and volume of distribution and all that. Um, uh, but somewhere in that range that still won't carry some people they'll still be in withdrawal for example from highly potent opioids so we're, we're seeing that already with fentanyl with people who are using really high volumes of or high quantities of fentanyl 
Um, and that's where methadone becomes really beneficial um, because we can get more opioid activity, frankly. Um, and so we are transitioning more people to methadone um, because of that. And so it'll be easier to transition people from these really, really highly potent nitazines uh, to methadone. Because if we're already seeing with fentanyl that, that the buprenorphine maxing, maxing it out isn't carrying them. And also, by the way, like the FDA wrote a, in like 2009, the package insert that 24 milligrams was like, should be the most that people will need which it, it's not a law. It's not anywhere in like the literature. They just decided that. But granted, that was 2009. And that was like in the heroin era. And, and people didn't need as much, frankly, back then. But like, that's just not carrying people now the same yeah. way that it was before. And so we need it. higher doses and we use higher doses. And so for my clinic, we have a lot of people now that are transitioning from fentanyl. They need to be at 32 milligrams. Um, for example, and sometimes their insurance won't cover it because they're like, oh, well, the max dose is 24. And you're like, like physiologically, that's not true. We know that's not true. We know that that's not hitting all of the opioid receptors for everyone. We know it's in that we can, we can, we studied it. We see it in the data. We see it from individual experiences because people know that that's not carrying them, but 32 is, and sometimes even more, right? I have some patients who need more than that, especially initially. And, and we can't get it covered by insurance or some pharmacies refuse to distribute it because, you know, these are the consequences of the backlash against the, the um, opioid settlements um, and the, the big hit that like even pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical companies and um, pharmacies all took a hit from that. And the pharmacies, their response is to just say, all right, we're not bringing any rules, right? If they, the FDA said 24, then we're going with 24, even though it's not a law. Nobody said that they can't. That's what they're doing. And so we have some pharmacies that we, we have learned will just, they just won't, they just won't give more than 24 milligrams. And so my patients who need more than that, I, just, I will tell them, like, you got to go somewhere else. Um, and so that becomes problematic, especially when people need more than that and their insurance won't cover it. And then you're talking about, you know, an equity and access issue. Um, but the, the, all that's to say, like, methadone, I think, is going to be more and more critically important as we go forward um, when we're dealing with these really highly potent opioids um, that we're already seeing in the drug supply. And now, Things often happen like on the East Coast first, come to the West Coast. We usually have a few years of lead time from what's happening on the East Coast. But I already in clinic have patients tell me when I ask them what they're using, you know, new, new patients, for example, and I want to get a sense too of like what their withdrawal syndrome is going to look like. And I've had patients tell me like, oh, I don't just use fentanyl. Because I'll ask like, oh, you know, how are you using? What are you using? Like, yeah. oh, I don't just use fentanyl. Like, I go get Ito or, or ISO. Like, and, they'll, and they'll just straight up, they know. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, it's already happened to me enough where they are 
consciously aware and knowingly seeking out those more highly potent substances that I know that if I could test the drug supply here, like in my clinic, I know we'd be seeing that. Um, That if patients are telling me that they are aware and they can seek it out, that it's already becoming prominent. Um, And so, so that's, that's the kind of, those are the kind of things that like keep me up at night, right? Like, what are we going to do when that becomes a huge problem? Um, we're going to see more overdoses. We're going to see people not being able to ma- be maintained on max dose buprenorphine. Um, we have injectables. So that's one of the things you talked about, like sublocade. So there are actually two injectables that exist now. One is called sublocade. Um, one is called Brixati. Both are extended release injectable buprenorphine um, that you can inject into the subcutaneous tissue um sublocade comes in 100 milligrams and 300 milligrams forms there's no real like dose equivalent described um in their in their own literature in their package insert um but it forms a like gel matrix under the skin like in your subcutaneous tissue so you can feel like a little nodule and your body breaks that down over time and it gradually releases you know a, a month of buprenorphine in your system at a fairly steady state. Um, Brixati is newer. Um, it was released last summer-ish time frame, um, and they make it in a dose equivalent. Um, so it's supposed to be equivalent to 24 milligrams, 16 milligrams, and 8 milligrams. And the first thing I told them when it came out was, guys need to go higher. <laughs> we need higher doses than this because this is not going to carry a lot of my patients we'll have to taper them down we'll have to get them started at 32 and taper them down to 24 to be able to use the 24 milligram injection and they were you know when i talked to them they were surprised actually to hear that but i asked them when they did their initial research and they did it in 2014 like 2013 2014 and so what they weren't aware of was that was before fentanyl became prominent in the drug supply. Our first overdose deaths in Sacramento, um, there were a cluster of four deaths that were investigated by the police, uh, and we had been hearing about it on the East Coast. We got toxicology reports, four deaths all around the same time, all tied to fentanyl. So we knew that was like a fairly early batch of what was, you know, what was at that time considered like a fentanyl poisoning. They probably thought they were using something else and it had fentanyl But that was 2016, right? And so if you did all your research in 2014 and you have this FDA statement in 2009 that says 24 is the max, you're like, that's just kind of what we went off. But, you know, I said like that, that's not going to, that's not going to hold in the fentanyl era in, you know, 2024. Yeah, no, I've seen it, you know, for those that are unfamiliar, I I do non-medical caretaking um, at an outpatient detox capacity and, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've I've literally it's user reported, obviously, but there's many people who are knowingly uh, partaking in nitazines, knowingly partaking in, in xylazine, which obviously is, you know, not an opioid, but it's uh, it's here and yeah. uh, it's it's going to continue to become more and more prevalent. So I think I it's uh, I, I love to hear your perspective on it, because already that's what I've been just logically. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when people are like, 
kind of deciding which, which type of medication they want to go for. I'm much more inclined to be like, hey, you know, talk to a doctor about this. Mm-hmm. But my own opinion, you know, is that a full agonist makes a lot more sense because I'm seeing that people are not being held down yeah. by 24 milligrams. They're yeah. not. And and yeah. it's it's just not holding them down at all. You know, so it's really, you know, we haven't we haven't talked about this this yet. So I just yeah. I love to hear that you're so with it and it just again it's just like yes i'm just over here like yes <laughs> this is this has been great brother i think that is. we we touched on a lot of stuff and um just so all the the supporters and watchers know we're gonna do uh, a counterpart to this to where yeah. uh you know taylor will, will go and, and ask me some <laughs> questions here um but but yeah is there anything else you want to kind of no i just end with to- no man, I'm I'm so stoked to get to do this with you and I appreciate you so much. Um and I appreciate everybody listening for listening and supporting us and um hopefully, you know, we can spread the spread the word and and um honestly the goal is to work to change the stigma and to change the way, you know, to reform recovery and to change the way we we as a society view that framework. And so I hope that, you know, the more we can talk about this, the more we can get the word out, the more people listening, I hope that we can affect some of that change and that's cool. And so I appreciate you and I appreciate everyone for listening. Awesome. Yeah, Couldn't have said it better myself, brother. I, I really appreciate that. And yeah, everyone, you know, like and subscribe <laughs> and we'll be back. We have some amazing guests queued up. And uh, again, like Taylor has mentioned before, if anyone has any suggestions, um, any topics you want us to go into or anyone wants to kind of uh, apply, so to speak, to to join us, uh, we're, we're definitely open to that. We're uh, the is it the recovery reform podcast at uh, Gmail. Or just recovery. recovery reform podcast at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not represent that of our employers. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please follow up with your doctor regarding your care. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. Thank you for listening.